Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Every once in a while, you discover a story that's pretty incredible. This is one of those stories. On this episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to look back on the career of Baseball Hall of Famer Ed Delahanty, a man who was in such dire straits financially, he left his team in the middle of a road trip and was found mysteriously dead at the base of Niagara Falls. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. In just a moment, John Sackman, a professor at Seton Hall University and a member of SABRE, the Society for American Baseball Research, will be joining me. John wrote the biography on Ed Delahanty for Sabre. But first, a little more about Ed. In 1945, Delahanty was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. His career batting average of 346 is the fifth best in the history of baseball, and he is the only man to ever win a batting title in both the National League and the American League, and yet he is very, very rarely referred to. Delahanty also led the National League in home runs twice. Three times he led the league in RBIs. Five times he hit more doubles than anyone. In 1899, he led the National League with 238 hits. And on three occasions, he hit over 400. His high coming in 1899 when he hit 410. And he could run too. In fact, in 1898, he led the National League with 58 stolen bases. The guy could flat out play. Yeah, he was a star. In fact, he might have been baseball's first five-tool player. Before we get into today's podcast, I'd like to thank my friends over at HearthCast and my friends over at Hungry Cliff for all the wonderful support they provided during the launch of Sports Forgotten Heroes. I'd also like to thank Jack and Henry for their financial support, too. In fact, if you'd like to support or sponsor Sports Forgotten Heroes, check out our page at patreon.com backslash sportsfh. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash sportsfh. You could also follow Sports Forgotten Heroes at sportsfh.com. You could follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes or check out the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook. I spoke with John Sackerman about Ed Delahanty, and as I just mentioned, John wrote a biography on Ed for the Society of American Baseball Research, also known as SABRE. And that's where I started my talk with John about SABRE. The biography project is a very ambitious but very uh, worthwhile effort on the part of society. 
to have a biography of every one of the roughly 15,000 um, people who have played Major League Baseball. And the way that it's been going, it's been advancing. And, and, and you know, Mark Armour is in charge, and Bill Nolan up in Boston is an incredible um, source. I mean, he writes so many of these biographies. And what they do is they've been organizing books about, well, teams in certain years. So, in other words, like all the bios of a particular team will go in there. But this, um, the, the Ed Delahanty was actually part of a, an initial effort to get dead ball stars in. Hmm. Um, so I did the biography for Ed and also his brother, um, Jim. And they, they, this was in the American League, dead ball stars, because the dead ball era started in, you know, 1900. And uh, by then, uh, Delahanty was in the American League. Right. But I, I wanted to make sure that he was included because I thought he was a very worthwhile uh, subject and, a very fa- as you say, a very fascinating uh, individual. Yeah, flat out, the guy was a star. Just how good was he? Well, you know, I, I was looking into that because I thought that's what, what this would be about, to try to um, give people a frame of reference. And there was a book, and it's called Leveling the Field, uh, written by a, a fellow by the name of G. Scott Thomas. And what he does is he takes the years, uh, the, the latter part of the 20th century, like the 1996 to 2000, and tries to put statistics from the past into that context. Mm-hmm. Because, like, for example, the home run, when Ed Delegate played, the home run was not a very big weapon, okay, that was used. It was just well, the ballparks were too big, and that wasn't what they were trying for. Right. Yet he was considered a, a feared slugger. He routinely drove at 100 runs a season, but, but hitting like 11 homers. So if I might give an example... In um, 1895, Ed Delahanty uh, had 11 homers, 106 RBIs, and a 404 batting average. Wow. If those statistics were translated into the, the times of uh, the late 20th century, you know, I guess the steroid era, we'll call it, uh, his numbers might have been 37 home runs, 100 RBIs, and a 369 average. So you see the batting average goes down a little standardization, but, the, you know, more than triple the home runs, and the RBIs shifted down a bit to 100. It's just based on what the average performance of the time would have been. So that's still a, a very substantial season. You know, anytime you're hitting 30 homers, 100 RBIs, and 300 average, they call that a Hall of Fame season, right? Why would the batting average go down? Well, that's just a, a matter of the the batting the, the 1890s, much like the 1990s, was a, a big hitting era, and one of the main reasons was that in uh, 1893, the pitchers. Uh, situation changed. They used to throw a flat ground from 50 feet away, and in 93, they changed it to the mound from 60 feet 6 inches away, and they had to be in contact with the rubber and all that kind of stuff. Right, right. So that when so the offense really uh, went up, and the averages were higher. In fact, Ed Delahanty was the first player to hit 400 in three different seasons. Sure. And he, and he only led the league in batting one of those. <laughs> That's crazy. You know, as as you have written, he was a five-tool player before that term came to use. Where did his fascination for the game come from, and how did he develop his skills? Ed Delahanty was a child of immigrants. And in fact, his other uh, four of his brothers were also professional baseball players. Uh, the second best of those being Brother Jim, who was an infielder for Detroit. But it was a very... Um, it was an avenue for the uh, for Irish immigrants to, to kind of make their way in society was to play baseball, just like maybe um, for, for Jewish Americans in the 19 teens and 20s it was boxing, right? The different ethnicities kind of clustered around different right. sports. And in the 1800s, it was very big for the Irish to play baseball. And in fact, there's books written about that, such as the Emerald Age of Baseball, uh-huh. which talks about this and how, how that was dominant. So that I mean, he he, lived, he grew up in Cleveland, 
And uh, that's where he kind of started his playing. And then he was in the minors, but he played catcher. He was shortstop and a second baseman before he found a home in the outfield. So he was, you know, I guess his versatility. I mean, he probably was tall for his time. He was six foot one and about 170. And um, some of the people, uh, some of the people who saw both of them play, because I saw neither, obviously, uh, <laughs> likened him to jo- likened him to Joe DiMaggio, that he he had the physical bearing and the style of Joe DiMaggio, which is uh, a great compliment, I would say, and it really helps you put him into context. Why do you think he doesn't have the reputation and stardom of guys like Nat LaJoy, Wee, Willie Keeler, Cy Young, Christy Mathewson, you know, the guys that he played against? Why do you think he his name doesn't carry the same stature as those names? Well, I think part of it, and it's, and it's something we, we have discussed by someone like Gil Hodges, who doesn't get a lot of Hall of Fame support um, because he died so young, and people don't remember him. I think the same thing happened for Ed Delahanty. I mean, uh, he died at at the age of what was it thirty five, thirty six, right? Um, under you know very tragic circumstances, sure. And kind of that, that that kind of takes him out. So he wasn't coaching afterwards. He wasn't being brought in for interviews. He was he was uh, voted into the Hall of Fame by the Veterans or the Old Timers Committee posthumously in nineteen forty five. And uh, you know by by then, how many people had actually seen him play? Right? Sure, it sure. Went from there, but yet when you look at the numbers, I mean, it's just. And that's what we do. It's just fascinating. I mean, he led the league in slugging four times. You know, I mean, he uh, he actually, like I said, led the league in batting average the one time, but he hit four hundred, four hundred four exactly two other times. You know, he and also part of it was I he he jumped around a bit, which was what the players did. I mean, sure. he he came up. He was paid three thousand a year to play, and by the time he was a star for Philadelphia, right? On one of their, I mean. During those years, they just didn't have enough pitching to, to make a go of it, but they were a very good offensive team, the final offensive team. And uh, he was only making the same amount of money later on, and that's when he decided to, to jump. People jumped to different leagues. He, he had jumped once to the Players League. The Players tried to start a league in 1890. He jumped back to the Phillies after that. Right. And then uh, when the American, the American League started up, he jumped to Washington and the American League. And, right. and then he was actually going to try to jump to the New York Giants, and then when it was barred, when the league stopped fighting each other, uh, that's when he was, you know, went into severe depression and, and he drank a lot, and that's might have led to his death. Hitting the ball and hitting it hard is what it was all about for Ed. That's what he was known for. Talk about just how hard he could hit it. I mean, I heard things about a pitcher by the name of Crazy Schmidt said of Delahanty, when you pitch to Ed, you just want to shut your eyes, say a prayer, and chuck the ball. The Lord only knows what will happen after that. I read where he broke George Pinckney's ankle when he hit a line drive to third base. It said he once split a ball in two. It said that he had a clause in his contract that said he couldn't bunt the ball because he would deprive the fans of seeing his power. So tell me about how hard he could hit the ball and and just how he was at the plate. Well, they, they say, I mean, like we only know from what we from people who observed them and what was written at the time, but they, they, they called line drives Delahanty bunts. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> so if you didn't hit it very far, line drives were Delahanty bunts. And um, he seemed to, you know, like you said, he was a, a bad ball hitter. In fact, they called him the original bad ball hitter, and he used a long bat, which was quite heavy, which you probably couldn't get away with today uh, because of how fast the pitchers throw, but he, um, he was able to adapt his swing. And uh, he he did have power to all the field. And that story about the splitting the ball that 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 is believable because they didn't really change the balls as often as they do now. And the ball was probably you know 
waterlogged or whatever, maybe not made as well. And it, that is that, that is something that survived till today. That yeah, he did hit a ball once and split it in half. <laughs> That's incredible. Um, and the power, uh, you know, like you said earlier, he led the league in home runs a couple of times. I think the most he ever had in the season was 19. And as you alluded to, it wasn't used as a weapon like it is today. But still, 19 home runs in those ballparks where sometimes they didn't even have a fence. It was just you you run and get all you can. Tell me about the power that he had. Well, yeah, you know, it, I guess the, the best way to do that is to think about it in context, right? So the year that he hit the 19 home runs was the year uh, 1893, which was when the pitching mound moved back. So there was a lot of adjustment going on, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, so the, then that's the thing. But, um, so if he had 19 home runs, he, I mean, we talked about how, we might have talked how Babe Ruth out-homered teams. In that season, he had the exact same number of home runs as the Louisville club. Wow. And more than the St. Louis club, which only had 10, and pretty close to uh, the, the Washington club, which had 23. So he had 19 home runs in a league that is 460 the entire year. So putting that into the context, um, hitting... 19 home runs in 1893 would have been the equivalent of 58 home runs in the late 20th century. To you, what was the most fascinating thing about Ed Delahanty? I'm drawn to the players, the five-tool type players. My, my hero growing up was Willie Mays, even though he was at the end of his career by the time I was rooting for him. And then he was traded to my favorite team, the Mets, which really consolidated my rooting. But um, I like the players who could do it all on the field at, you know, uh, in, in the field, at bat. For example, Ed, Ed Delahanty once led the league in stolen bases with 58. Even though we're talking about this guy who's hitting all these home runs, he also led the league in steals at one time. Right. And uh, and again, he had that defensive reputation as a left fielder, and uh, that's that's what initially drew me to him. And then, of course, the the fascinating aspects of his personal life, the, the sure. tragedy of Niagara Falls, that you know, I kind of put him over the top. As you just said, he would play left field, but he came up as an infielder and then moved to the outfield. Why was that? And he did develop into not just a good outfielder, but a great outfielder. Well, what happened was um, when he was uh, first playing with the Phillies in 1889, he was second baseman, and he was injured and sidelined for three months, and someone else took his job at second, so they moved him to the outfield. And that seemed to be really where he found a home. And that was his, that's where he made his name as an outfielder. And then towards the end of his career, he played a lot of first base as well. And again, there were rules changes then as well, because, you know, the, um, it used to be that if you were, if you threw the ball at a person who wasn't occupying a base and hit him with the ball, uh, he would be out. I didn't but, know um, that. Just yeah. like, uh, just like kickball today. Exactly. Just like kickball today. But yeah, I mean, he routinely had as many as 20 outfield assists in a season, you know, that, that was pretty standards for him. Like you said, good arm. Like, and again, the people who saw both of them play likened him to Joe DiMaggio, who was also known for his arm and ability in the field. He first comes up, he comes up with Philadelphia, then he leaves Philadelphia for Cleveland, and then he comes back to Philadelphia. Why did he leave Philadelphia to join Cleveland? Well, the, the Cleveland, well Philadelphia was the National League club that we still know today, you know, Philly. But Cleveland was part of another league called the Players League. Uh, the, the players were um, disenchanted with their treatment by ownership, as you know was common, and so they start, they started their own league, the Players League, which didn't last very long. But he jumped there to play uh, for the Cleveland club, which was his hometown, and he might have 
didn't have the best year there. And uh, th- there's a quote from him that he regretted playing for his hometown. Uh, playing your hometown is a mistake. And he uh, actually played shortstop for Cleveland the Players mm. League. And then he, again, he jumped back to Philadelphia the following year, and he played in the next 11 years as a Philadelphia Philly, primarily as an outfielder. When he came back to Philly, he was okay. He wasn't awesome. What changed? What did he do to better his game? Well, it probably was just experience. I think just the experience and the, uh, being not, not being injured, being able to play you know, mostly every day, I think was a big part of that. And then it does seem like his, I mean, the while he did bat, um over 300 in 1892. His um, his big his big breakout season came when they moved the pitchers back. When in '93 they moved the mound back 10 feet and you know moved it and made the mound, and uh, that's when his numbers started to skyrocket and they continued for the rest of the decade. So I'm, I'm sure that has something to do with it. It's just like in the 1960s when they did things with the mound, when they raised the mound and the pitching staff got better and all that kind of stuff, you know. So Big Ed felt slighted. He never thought he was being paid fairly, and this is what led him to his decision to jump leagues. He wanted to join John McGraw and the New York Giants, but he was never allowed the opportunity to do so, and he never got to experience the thrill of winning a championship even though he was the best player at the plate and in the field. Mike Soule wrote a book called July 2nd, 1903. In fact, that book is the impetus behind Sports Forgotten Heroes. And in that book, Soule noted that a writer from a Philadelphia newspaper said, Dell has an eye as keen as a hawk to judge the distance a ball would take and an ear that was trained to instinctively estimate by the sound of the crack of the bat how far the ball would travel. Yeah, he could field, and his arm was as big as they came, and his stroke at the plate was powerful. So powerful, in fact, that Big Ed Delahanty was the first player to ever hit four home runs in one game, and he did so in 1896 against the Chicago Cubs at their home, which at that point was called the West Side Grounds. They had yet to move into Wrigley Field. His first time up, Ed lined one to right field, and by the time Chicago's Jimmy Ryan tracked down the ball, Ed had already circled the bases. Now, this was at a time when some ballparks didn't even have an outfield wall, and some had a wall that was so far it couldn't be reached. In fact, center field in Chicago was 560 feet from home. In the third inning, Ed singled, and then the fireworks. In the fifth, the King of Swat crushed one over the right center field scoreboard. In the seventh, he crushed another one, this time over center fielder Bill Lang's head for his third home run of the day. And in the ninth, Delahanty hit one to center field that couldn't be caught. And for the first time in history, someone had hit four home runs in one game. Now a funny side note, for his efforts, Big Ed got four free boxes of gum, one for each home run he hit. Think about that for a moment. Those were the good times for Ed. But the battle between the National League and the American League was just heating up, and it took its toll on several players, including Delahanty. In fact, the National League was still attempting to shut down all competition and did not want its players jumping to the American League. And Rogers was adamant about this to the point where, as Sackman explained earlier, 
Rodgers was able to file an injunction that prevented any player who jumped ship to the American League that prevented those players from stepping onto a ball field in the entire state of Pennsylvania. Well, I mean, certainly they weren't the only people who couldn't play in Philadelphia. When uh, Nat Lejoy uh, had uh, jumped, right, he, he, had, he couldn't play in Philadelphia, you know, Pennsylvania either, and that was in, you know, in the American League. So that was a, a very big um, a very big concern that, you know, you didn't know who was playing for you on any given day in any given town. Um, people were jumping in the middle of seasons. They were, they were leaving the teams and going. So that, yeah, it was, it was like the Wild West. And uh, they finally, when they had the truce um, that, that in 03, that's when the leagues finally stabilized. But before that, you know, in the 1890s and the early 1900s, the very early 1900s, that was a big deal. And in fact, the, as you know, the first World Series wasn't played until 03, even though the American League started in 1901. Uh, right. You know, McGraw or whatever refused to play against the, the minor league team or whatever it was. Well, that was in 04. But yeah, they, 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 there was just such rancor between the leagues that they couldn't even get together to play a World Series. Sure. Between the two major leagues. Sure. Which... Which is so different today. Now that it's just one league, you have umpires umpiring for both leagues and all that. You had mentioned that he had several brothers who played as well. Can you tell me a little about some of his brothers? Well, probably the the, the best known and, and best playing of, of the remainder of them was Jim, and uh, Jim was an infielder and played for um, primarily for Detroit, and uh, a good player in his own right. Not a Hall of Famer uh, by any stretch, but a good solid major leaguer. I always, you know, I don't, I don't denigrate anybody who hates major leagues, right? Yeah, <laughs> More yeah. than any of us ever did. So we respect right, that. Right. But uh, yeah, he, he did. He, he was a, he was a good player, but uh, not quite the same as his brother. But he, and he was also there um, when, when he went on that final um, spree, shall we say, uh, Jim was there along with their mother uh, trying to, uh, you know, talk them into uh, getting some help for his alcoholism and his depression and that sort of thing. You know, he did go from Philly to the Senators, and the Senators, of course, thought they'd be better, but they were always a second-division team. How did that affect Ed, uh, along with the fact that no team he ever played for finished first? Right. He never uh, he never had to win a championship. Yeah, I um, I don't know, to be honest, how, how that affected his, his, his view of things. I think at this point in his life, I think his... Um, his personal problems and his indebtedness were trying to start to take hold of him, and he was just trying to jump anywhere that he could. Although, obviously, jumping to the New York Giants because you know starting to McGraw was starting to uh, build a powerhouse there might, might have really uh, enhanced their chances. But uh, and he might have won that championship had he survived and been able to play there. What were the circumstances that got him to Washington, and then when he finally gets there during his time there, he was so out of shape that the manager sent him to a spa to get into shape. What was what was his time in Washington like? Well, you know he he had uh, he had a very good 1902 season. Um, that was his first with Washington, in his only full season, obviously with the club. He actually wound up leading the American League in batting average, on base percentage, and slugging. So I mean, it, he batted three seventy six, on base was four fifty three, slugged five ninety. I mean, those are great numbers even today, right? So he he still was a, an effective and, and useful player at that point. But then um, he had these debts. His wife had become ill, and he signed that contract with McGraw and the Giants, and 
it was either six or eight thousand per season, which was a, a nice nice bump in pay to a sure. four thousand he had made, and there was a four thousand advance or bonus to try to take down some of his debt. But then, prior to the O three season, the leagues decided to not steal each other's players so much anymore, <laughs> and not only did Ed have to stay in Washington, didn't have that big contract, he had to pay back the four thousand dollar advance. Yeah, so essentially, from everything that I read. Not only would he have to pay back the advance, he spent it, and right. he would actually lose a hundred dollars for the season. So in reality, he sort of had to pay to play, which is That's right. a tough pill to swallow. And of course, the team, you know, sort of loaned him money and said, "Well, you could pay it back over a period of time." But right. he didn't get it, yeah. his big payday, and he had to pay money back. I mean, it's crazy to think about. Yeah, I mean. You think about today and, you know, how teams help players in debt and all this kind of stuff, and it just was not the case then. Absolutely not. And obviously, again, that, that sort of thing uh, wears on you. But um, he was, like you said, he was sent to a spa. He was injured. And um, he had injured his back and his ankle. And so they sent him a spa in Michigan to, you know, shape up. Who knows? Maybe it was even possibly a place to dry out. You know, I don't know. But um, not quite clear. But then he, you know, came back to the team in late May. And he, you know, played pretty well for about a month. But again, uh, there were some problems there because he viewed himself as a left fielder, and the manager wanted him to play right field, try to take advantage of his arm and that sort of thing. And, and so that was a, a feud with him, you know, and that was another one. And that ultimately led to the mysterious death of Ed Delahanty. So the team takes a road trip, and I believe the last place on the trip that they were going was Detroit, and. Ed was basically despondent at this point and doesn't play in any of the games in Detroit. And as you had mentioned earlier, uh, they called his mom out there. I think his brother was out there and he was a mess. And there are even reports that he tried to take his life earlier uh, that year. Tell me about that road trip to Detroit and what happened. Well, actually, he, they, they embarked on that trip uh, starting on June 17th and he actually played his last game on the 25th of June uh, for, for the Senators. But the, the thing is that, and I didn't realize this until you, you read some of the stuff at the time, people actually at that time were taking out short-term life insurance policies, like a 24-hour life insurance policy yeah, or one-week life where, insurance policy. Yeah, he was... It was a soul's book, I think, right? Yeah, and he had done that repeatedly and made his daughter the beneficiary. And I don't know if there was suicide exclusions. Um, there there. The, the the gas on his stove in his apartment in Washington was was on one time and you know somebody came in took that off. Um, he uh, he was giving away some of his things like a gold watch to to his teammates to his friends. Uh, so he, he's behaving quite erratically, but he's also behaving like someone who figured he didn't have much time left. You know, he leaves Detroit um, at that time. I forget who the uh, there was another player who they allowed to leave his team and go to the Giants. So I think at that point, Ed thought that he, too, would be able to move on to the Giants, but that never happened. So he gets on this train to go to New York, but he never arrives. And this this trip on the train, uh, from all accounts, was not pleasant for the other passengers. Tell me about what happened on that train. Yeah, as you said, he might have been despondent over the fact that they allowed George Davis to, to jump and not him, that he thought he was being, you know, single, you know, singled out. 
But, you know, he was on the White Sox. He wanted to go to the Giants. And it seemed like he was getting away with it. And that kind of, you know, set him off. But he, uh, according to uh, railroad employees, he disturbed the peace in six different ways on that train. Now, the train was coming through Canada, crossing over into Buffalo, and ultimately trying to go down to New York City, right? So um, he smoked when he wasn't supposed to. He was drinking to excess. He broke the, broke the glass in front of an emergency tool cabinet, right? All that sort of thing. Finally fell asleep. In Ontario, he tried to enter a birth, a Pullman birth that was already occupied. Had to be, he was confused. He was subdued by three men. And then uh, finally the conductor uh, ordered him off the train. And uh, so he walked out. And uh, if you've been up there, the uh, International Railway Bridge, right by the Peace Bridge between uh, Buffalo and, you know, and uh, Canada, and uh, he walked out, and uh, he was either he was accosted by a man there. He was either um, pushed off or fell off, you know, because he was still inebriated, and uh, disappeared. And then he was found about a week later at the bottom of the Horseshoe Falls. It wasn't. It wasn't good, like you said. He he disappeared, and people right. were out looking for him, and no one yeah. has any clue that. This happened. The the the, the person, the, I think his name is Sam Kingston, I, and I wish and I love the the book by Soul on this. The, the whole you know July, uh, nineteen oh three, right? That book, very entertaining read. I Great just wish book. he had footnoted. I wish he had footnoted. That's the one thing I wish he had done because I like to know some of the sources for some of this information. But he says in that book that Kingston had uh, Delahanty's, I think it was his hat or something of his clothing that he was wearing. You know, and uh, it was a jacket or a hat, I forget which. But he, so, I mean, there was obviously a confrontation with Kingston, who was kind of a watchman on the bridge looking for smugglers between the two countries. And, and he, uh, he might have, uh, like, he might have accosted him. He might have, you know, yelled at him, whatever. I don't know, but he wound up with his hat. And Delahanty was, with no clothing found at the bottom of the Horseshoe Falls in Canada. There's no responsibility at all claimed by the railroad for taking Ed off the train, sort of in the middle of no place. I mean, the bridge was 3,600 feet long, and to expect them to walk this bridge, you know, back into the country, yeah. I mean, I don't know why they didn't wait uh, until he was in Buffalo. I'm not quite sure why that was, but obviously they've had enough of him. (laughs) Yeah, mysterious death, nonetheless. And they, you know, when they found his body, uh, all he had on was his necktie, uh, a pair of socks, um, yeah. That's all that was left. Uh, they found him at the bottom of uh, Niagara Falls. Uh, I think part of one of his legs were mangled. And it uh, wasn't yeah. too long afterwards that they identified that uh, body as that of Ed Delahanty. And it was a pretty sad day, obviously, for for Washington, for Philadelphia. And the fact, you know, obviously his wife, who was now left with nothing. That's true, and his and his young daughter, yes, and uh, you know, and again, he had tried to provide for them by by those short term insurance policies, you know, knowing that he was probably on a bad path. But uh, yeah, that was that was that. So it took quite some time thereafter uh, for Ed to be elected to the Hall of Fame. Tell me about how his election came about. You know, here's a guy who has the fifth highest batting average of all time, three forty six, and it takes him so long to get into the Hall of Fame. Why and how did his election come about? Well, I think they really were working with very recent players when the whole first 
started putting players in was in 36. So then, you know, they, they started to induct people from there. Um, but, you know, like I said, they, they, he really didn't get in until they started that old timers uh, committee. And they still have that now. You know, they still try to get the players, you know, the, 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 to make sure that all the eras are pro- properly represented, the best players of each era get in. And there probably are some players from back then that still didn't get in, you know? I mean, some good players from, from, from that turn of the century, but at least, you know, somebody we would think we would identify, a, you know, a recognizable name as being one of the best ever, and, you know, he actually got in, so that's good. <laughs> but, right. yeah. So, overall, what kind of ball player was Ed Delahanty? If you had to sum it up, what would you say about Ed Delahanty? Ed Delahanty was a feared slugger, a five-tool player, um, who, who cared about his defense as well, ran the base as well, uh, routinely scored well over 100 runs in a season, which is, I think is a true mark. He's a really great player to score 100 runs, and he did that at least like eight times or something. And um, he could do it all on the ball field. And uh, had he been able to keep his life in order off it, he might have he might have been able to see even uh, greater feats from him, and he might have actually won that championship that eluded him in his career. John, thank you so much for joining me. Is there anything I've left out, anything else that people should know about Ed Delahanty? We talk about how he had, you know, these problems off the field. And in fact, he, when the t- players were trying to watch over him for safety, he might have chased one of them away with a knife and that sort of thing. But even with that, as part of the record, we also should realize he was named captain of his teams. At a time when that really meant more. The captains were more like managers on the field in that era. And he was well thought enough, and his, his knowledge of the game was such that he was uh, a captain, you know, he was in the outfield, which I think is a significant uh, fact that kind of gets lost when just looking at the numbers. Again, thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. It's been a real pleasure. My pleasure too, Warren. Thank you so much. The first class elected to Baseball's Hall of Fame consisted of Ty Cobb, Walter Johnson, Christy Mathewson, Honus Wagner, and Babe Ruth. Every single one of them a legend, and you can't argue with the selection of any of them. But the weird thing is, it wasn't until 1945 when Ed Delahanty was selected for enshrinement, and he was selected along with Roger Bresnahan, Dan Brothers, Fred Clark, and a host of others, most of whom could also probably fall into the category of a sports-forgotten hero. Who knows, maybe we'll do podcasts on each of them. As for Delahanty, as Sackman stated, perhaps the biggest reason it took him so long to be inducted into the Hall of Fame was because he'd been out of the public's eye for such a long period, 42 years after his mysterious death. His career batting average of 346 is the fifth highest of all time. He was well respected by those around him, as evidenced by the fact that he was his team's captain, and he just might have been baseball's first five-tool star. For a link to John's biography and for more on Ed Delahanty, please visit sportsfh.com. That's sportsfh.com. You can find out information on past episodes of Sports Forgotten Heroes, and you can check out who will be featured on upcoming podcasts. To show your support or to sponsor Sports Forgotten Heroes, please check out our patreon.com page. That's patreon.com backslash sportsfh, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com backslash sportsfh. Follow us on Twitter at sportsfheroes and look for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook. 
next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we'll take a look back at the career of one of the greatest Olympic champions of all time, Teofilo Stevenson. He is the only heavyweight boxer in the history of the Olympics to win three gold medals. Thank you again to my guest today, John Sackman, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.